Now, uh, we turn to uh, Professor Atif Kabursi, um, who is Emeritus McMaster uh, Professor, an expert on economics. We've had uh, an extremely detailed and careful analysis of the legal situation, and Atif is going to talk to us about the economic underbelly component of this conflict, trying to understand what we're seeing at the moment in terms of questions of resources and so on. Um, to keep on time, um, I won't go into too long an introduction to Artif. Uh, he's a um, very renowned international um, expert on economics. As I said before, he's worked in United Nations capacity. He has great expertise. And um, we look forward to what you have to tell us now about the economics of the situation. Artif. Thank you very much, uh, Piers, for your kind introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to be part of this distinguished panel here. And uh, I see that my presentation is uh, quite complementary to what Professor Falk had uh, presented. The issue here is that the events that happened October 7 and the justification and the reactions uh, call into question some of these events in a way that, uh, why did they happen? Why did they happen the way they did? How could a country that has such a sophisticated, advanced technology and is very concerned about its security would allow something like this to happen and for the reaction to take so long uh, to come uh, forward? And then the scale uh, of the reaction and the onslaught and the incredible toll on the civilians, particularly children, and women, and all people. Uh, the issue is uh, definitely, as uh, Professor uh, Falk had mentioned, it's part of that uh, Zionist uh, attempt uh, to uh, uh, the Zionist attempt to try as much as possible to uh, complete, so to speak, the Greater Israel. Uh, project and to uh, expand and uh, get to grab more land. And then the declared objectives that uh, we have to dismantle Hamas for the sake of security Israel, and uh, we have to liberate the hostages, and uh, we have to make sure uh, that no future scale attempt of the sort would ever happen. These are the declared objectives. But then how would you explain this incredible carpet bombing, this huge uh, reaction, uh, this uh, heavy toll, the like of which we have never watched, have never seen. Even Dresden did not suffer what uh, Gaza has suffered. And the number of uh, deaths and uh, wounded and the scale of transferring people from one side to the other uh, is unbelievable. But what's more important are the undeclared objectives. What seems to be the case here is that there is an attempt to make Gaza undeveloped. That there is here a way in which Professor Marshheimer, in December 12, has claimed that. The objective here is to flatten, erase, destroy, make Gaza unlivable, transfer the population of Gaza, empty Gaza 
of its people. But why would Israel seek this type of objective? Uh, the story here is that it's only presented as if it's part of that greater Israel, the Zionist project that would not be completed until Israel is from the Euphrates to the Nile, as it be. In many areas, it is expressed. But the story is there are a number of very credible and very substantive reasons that would make this project to be also in pursuit of the colonial economic advantages. I'm going to mention three major objectives here and three major projects that would point out that Israel is seeking some economic gains here. And that colonial advantage that has always been part of any colonial project is at play here. The first and foremost uh, objective is the control of gas in the, where you see in the map, the Levant Basin. This Levant Basin is now home to about 122 trillion cubic feet of gas. And this is from the U.S. Geological Survey. And uh, this has become extremely a valuable, particularly in the aftermath of the destruction of Nord Stream 2 and the uh, withdrawal of any supply coming from Russia in the aftermath of the Ukraine-Russian war. And this area has also about 1.7 billion barrels of oil. And it's a shared resource. It's shared between, as you can see, in Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Cyprus. And in this respect, uh, one would have expected that this shared resource would be one that would be managed collectively. And in the interest of the collective number of countries that are riparian to this. There are some very important characteristics about gas and oil and about energy that are really quite serious and fundamental. First and foremost, oil, gas, as fossil fuel are non-renewable, which means that any time you exploit them today, you're denying forfeiting the right of future generations uh, to exploit them. The second, that because they are shared resources, it means, given that they are finite, non-renewable, that if one party exploits this resource, Less is available for the rest of the countries. And there is no question about it. This seems to be at play here, as I will show what happened with Israel exploiting the oil fields, managed oil fields, in Area C in the West Bank. And the other thing is that it's a fugitive type of resource, especially the gas. It doesn't stay in one place. The other thing being basically underwater, there is no guarantee that there is any consistency of the existence of the resource in terms of the political borders. It straddles all these borders, and they are shared things, in the sense that there was an agreement between Israel and Lebanon about the Karish and Kana, 
and, and, and many people felt that this was not really a, a very good agreement because there is no way Lebanon, which would become a, able to produce and to lift some of this gas and oil in five years' time, would find anything because if these are really shared resources and Israel is using it now, by the time the Lebanese are able to lift, there will be probably nothing left. There's no way you can prevent a party to use its only share. And the United States had the same similar situation in Oklahoma and Texas, where oil was found under the ground of many uh, farmers and parties. And what they really found to be important, and this really was according to a great economist, Ronald Coase, who got Nobel Prize for it, that you have to unitize. Unitize by this, we mean that no party is allowed to lift or to use this resource without the acquiescence and sharing with the rest. And what would you do is you allow one party on behalf of the collective to exploit it in the most efficient way. Because if you, each one were to pierce a hole and lift it, it would dissipate the natural flow and become extremely expensive to do that. And there would be basic major reasons for conflict. Unitization would mean that it would be exploited on behalf of all. All the resources are now exploited by one party representing everybody and it would uh, exploit it in the most efficient way. It would lift all the resource and sell it and put it in a kitty in an escrow fund that would be divided up among the different parties. This is not what Israel is doing. Israel is trying to basically and fundamentally uh, make sure that the Lebanese are not getting their fair share and making sure that Gaza is not getting any of its share. And here, this is exactly what we see here, is a situation in which Gaza, they're Marine 1 and Marine 2, and there are incredible amount of gas, and it's about only 20 nautical miles uh, you know, from uh, Gaza, and uh, even in the Oslo Agreement 2, uh, the Palestinians were given the right to exploit in their economic zone, all the way as you see in this picture, to the very end of that triangle that is there, that should really be the amount of gas that the Palestinians would use. And there were negotiations once it was really discovered, 1999. It would, the Barack government tried to see that maybe uh, there would be a way in which we could uh, take this uh, gas from the Palestinian Wells and send it to Israel to the Israeli Electric Company, and the contract was signed with the parties. At one time, Arafat took a group, and there was a Lebanese uh, a group called CCC, the Consolidated uh, Contractors, uh, who invested money and to build this uh, pipeline, and they would uh, sell it to Israel, and this would be put as part of the money that the Palestinian National Authority would use. And then Sharon came and said, no way, we're not going. And then there was a very evident a group of Israeli companies that had lobbied the government that uh, you should not allow them. 
uh, to produce anything because the money they're going to get would be used to fund terrorism against us. No country should allow a uh, pipeline of wealth uh, that would be used against it. Uh, and this was the time at where the also agreement was with the Palestinian National Authority and they had already arrived at some uh, arrangement. Uh, the story of the negotiations, and they are detailed in my paper and I will put it really available for anybody to, to look at it, suggests that Israel was trying basically fundamentally to deny the Palestinians from any use of this resource in much the same way it denied the Palestinians the use of their oil, which was in area C of the West Bank, which many country, many uh, residents of the area near Majd uh, said that their houses were shaken and were uh, damaged because Israel was literally drilling for oil, siphoning this oil that should really be legitimately used for the economic development of the Palestinians. And this is a, in contravention, as uh, Dr. Falk has really written and explained, that the, the occupier has no right to use the resources of the occupied people, only if it will be used to benefit the people under occupation. But here is Israel taking, siphoning all this oil for its own interest at the expense of the Palestinians' ability to use uh, this resource. If this was not sufficient, uh, there are other reasons. And these reasons are incredibly uh, becoming now important and uh, becoming very substantial. At one time, in 1960s, the U.S. has underwritten a project uh, and uh, got a, uh, a company, American company, to study the development of an alternative to the Suez Canal. At the time, you know, Nasser uh, had nationalized the Suez Canal and, you know, the troubles with the French and the British who have attacked really in 1956. But the story was that the Americans felt that there is no way they can live, accept, and feel uh, comfortable about a, a very important canal such as the Suez Canal uh, to be in uh, uh, in a way that uh, would be totally outside the command and control <clears throat> and the uh, full uh, exercise of sovereignty of the Egyptians. And the Suez Canal is only 196 kilometers. It's only 100 meters wide, 50 meters, sometimes less uh, deep. And that it allows only one-way traffic. If uh, the traffic is going from the south to the north, from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, then there would be no chance for ships from the Mediterranean to come down uh, through the Suez Canal uh, to the uh, Red Sea. And there was a big problem. Uh, the problem being uh, that it needs dredging very often uh, because it's in the sandy uh, 
geological situation and any sandstorm would really fill it up. It needs to be dredged. And it's becoming quite costly to do that. And as you can remember, just a few months back, a very important ship really ran aground. And it took uh, days and weeks and big losses, estimated at about $10 billion, uh, to clear the canal. 12% to 15% of the world trade goes through this canal. And uh, about 30% of the total container uh, traffic goes through this area. Uh, quite a bit of the oil that comes from the Middle East, particularly from the Gulf of Saudi Arabia, from Kuwait, from Oman, and uh, other countries in uh, the Gulf, uh, goes through the canal as it goes to Europe. And it saves three weeks of traffic. I mean, the area from Mumbai in India, or take it to China, all the way to London, is about 17,000 nautical miles if you go around Africa. But if you go through the canal, you will find that there is really a major uh, saving in, in time, almost about uh, you, you will be saving around uh, literally 4,000 uh, nautical miles, which would be about uh, literally about uh, uh, three weeks, as I mentioned. And this is really a, a major uh, saving uh, in terms of the cost of transporting all these uh, products and uh, energy uh, from uh, the Gulf or from India or from China or from any or Japan or anything uh, that uh, world trade would be in a very uh, substantive way impacted and the cost would rise. And some people are really saying that now with the uh, Yemenis are trying to interfere into the free flow of these uh, commodities going through uh, the canal, uh, they're basically and fundamentally uh, imposing a very high cost on uh, the rest of the world, and, and most people saying that you know uh, prices of uh, oil uh, that had dropped to a very low level now below seventy dollars, they may really start to rise and rise in a significant way. Uh, the uh, Bengorian Canal that uh, uh, was conceived in the sixties, then lay dormant, and then all of a sudden the Israelis now are saying, "Look, uh, we're going to build this uh, Bengorian Canal, and uh, it's going to be." 100, 200 meters wide, which we would allow two-way traffic, is going to be deeper by about 10 to 15, and maybe some people say it's about 50 uh, meter, uh, another 50 meter deep, and this would allow much larger, the largest ships uh, that are now unable, particularly for the Americans and the Imperial West, to uh, have a free flow of their aircraft carriers going through. Now, this is a a situation where if you really build it, which uh, would completely compromise the ability of Egypt to uh, take advantage of it, uh, Egypt derives about $9.7 billion a year, 2% of the Egyptian GDP, and this is not a small amount, and the absence of uh, other alternative important economic uh, uh, drivers, uh, Egypt would be hurt in a very fundamental way. And the story here is that if you look at this map that I have, uh, the original plan was to go from Elat 
which is on the Red Sea, all the way to Ashkelon. But it is still within, you know, the reach of weapons in Gaza. And the best and most efficient way you could get this uh, uh, canal would be to go to a straight line, which is the shortest distance, and this would have to go through Gaza. So to a great extent, some people are saying, okay, what does it really do? It would save uh, about uh, 40 to 50 kilometers uh, in space. But more importantly, if you go through the Negev, you're going through sand. If you go directly through Gaza, the geological structure of the canal would be primarily into a rocky area, which would save all this incredible cost of dredging that would be continuously needed and would allow you also uh, to have a wider canal, a deeper canal. And in this respect, uh, there is really a very serious threat uh, that would uh, be presented by this canal. And this canal could really be in the most optimal geological and the shortest distance, which is a straight line to go directly through northern Gaza or even southern Gaza. But this would require emptying Gaza. So emptying Gaza has now two dimensions. One, you prevent anybody from Gaza ever claiming gas that would now be totally exploited by Israel. In a very serious situation where now gas has become three to four times more valuable than it was a few years back because of the incredible need. Europeans are all coming to Israel uh, in a way that they never really came in, in the hope that of laying claim to some of this to replace the gas that they have missed because of the destruction. One raises question about who destroyed Nord Stream 2 and who benefits from this destruction. The other one is that this canal would become really optimal and would be a real substitute for the uh, Suez Canal to the extent that it is in that rocky area that would allow two-way traffic, that would be deep, that would not be requiring all this dredging on a continuous basis. If these two are not enough to empty Gaza and to explain why the Israelis have been very adamant about making Gaza unlivable, destroying all the housing infrastructure. I mean, one of the ministers have suggested that now when we finish, we should not allow the Gazans to get to a single commodity that would be required for reconstruction. We should make sure they cannot reconstruct because what we really want is them to leave. And it would be, this is the farce, a voluntary a, you know, departure, because uh, they don't have any homes or things. But hey, when you control the borders, you control access of everything coming in, that is really the genocide that uh, Professor Falk was talking about. This is basically the intent of the Israelis is to make Gaza an empty space, to make it unlivable, to make sure that people are driven out. Uh, they, they have already, they, they, before yesterday, uh, Israeli delegations went to Rwanda and went to Chad, trying to persuade these two countries to accept massive uh, transfers of Palestinian them, promising them money, promising them weapons, promising support in any shape or form that would allow these uh, to accept 
is transferred. The Israelis are still bent on emptying Gaza, and emptying Gaza either by destruction of all the people as continuously every day we see this violent onslaught of killing en masse, a huge number of children and women. Uh, one would wonder if this is basically uh, this attack, self-defense, and to prevent future events from happening, there is no question this violence is sowing the seeds of future violence. The only one certain aspect about violence, it breeds violence, that what you do today is likely to come back at you in the future, and the history is rife with examples of so. If these two projects are not sufficient reason to explain why the Israelis they have not declared it, but they have sought this and continue to be adamant about occupying Gaza, emptying Gaza, erasing Gaza, making it unlivable so that it will become a very safe place for the Israelis uh, to prevent them from using their gas, prevent them uh, from obstructing the most efficient possible way to replace the Suez Canal. There is the third one that's coming also, and this is also uh, playing into the hands of the Americans and the empire. The Americans are adamant on creating an alternative to the Silk Road. The Silk Road is a project that China had sponsored and had invested heavily in, and has devoted literally billions of not trillions of dollars to create this route that would take it from China all the way to Europe, Middle East, to Africa in a way that will allow the Chinese uh, to uh, sell their goods and services uh, in a way you know, unimpeded and uh, in no way to be subject to any control of the seas. And Iran was also one of the hubs on this Silk Road and would go from China through you know, Asia, Pakistan, and then Iran, and then Syria. And all. These are the countries that the United States does not want to get any benefit from. And they persuaded and tried to persuade, and in some sense they succeeded, but not uh, you know, without uh, you know, some doubts about this, uh, that... Uh, there will be now a multimodal connections between India, it goes all the way to Dubai, from Dubai to Israel, Israel to Europe, bypassing Iran, bypassing Syria, bypassing uh, Egypt, bypassing many of the Arab countries. And then why would the uh, Israelis go on such an expensive one? It's because it's underwritten by the Americans. The Americans seem to completely uh, have an open hand when it comes to Israel. At one time, and if you think I'm exaggerating, our uh, you know, friend Mr. Biden said that investing $3.6 billion, this is only the one uh, amount of money that's given to the military, is a guilt-edge investment. And uh, it's purely a, a good, really, investment. Good in terms of what? Investment is cost, but then it's really returns. What are the returns the Americans are expecting? They're basically and fundamentally using Israel as a hegemonic power in the Middle East that would serve to suppress and to contain and to emasculate any possible uh, group that might really work 
with the Russians or Chinese or any contending uh, and contesting power. This is part of the hegemonic uh, exercise of the empire and unipolar world. And uh, they find in Israel and the UAE a very willing partner. And then, then some people said that this uh, uh, Silk Road, uh, sorry, uh, the alternative to Silk Road has worked in, a, in the past few weeks. Uh, there is really now some uh, concerns that uh, UAE has been sending multiple trucks with uh, fresh food and everything to Israel that goes from Dubai uh, into Saudi Arabia and into Jordan and then into Israel. Uh, I mean, people, the other parties have denied this, but uh, to some extent, the Israelis have been very adamant that this is happening. And now we're seeing that this route, this alternative is not an imaginary one, but that they are basically and fundamentally implementing it and they're uh, taking the benefits that could come from it. What does this all mean? What it really means that this war is definitely motivated by Zionist ideology and Zionist aims and designs. But that's not, not mutually exclusive with some of the arguments I'm presenting, that there are colonial economic material advantages that Israel is seeking as a return to its investment into this war, and that in addition to eliminating any competition or reaction from the people, Palestinian people in Gaza, there would be returns. And these returns are very lucrative. I mean, there is no question about it. Uh, the uh, total value of the Levant Basin at the old prices of 2019 was about $350 billion. And if Israel prevents Lebanon or makes it wait, and they could siphon it and slant the drilling, and if they can completely... Uh, prevent the Palestinians from exploiting their own natural resources, and the Israelis can use them, and they would really get in their hands on a very lucrative bundle here, and the amounts that are, some people really saying, with the rise in the price of gas due to the Iraq, to the uh, Ukraine-Russian uh, war, uh, that these uh, values have risen more than three to four times. And then the oil that you would get. That's only energy sufficiency, but creating of Israel as a petrol state or a gas state with an empire and very important lucrative investment that would return huge amount of rents uh, to the Israelis. And if this was not sufficient, then add to it the Suez, uh, the alternative to the Suez Canal was maybe about $10, $20 billion in terms of shipping fees and uh, the control on being a major power that would connect the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. And if these two are not sufficient, let's go to the third one, which is the alternative to the Silk Road, undermining the capacity of the Chinese to supply routes all the way through Asia, to Europe, and to Africa, 
uh, in a way, Israel has positioned itself by emptying Gaza as a major economic uh, driver and hegemonic control over trade routes that would serve them. Um, thank you very much. Uh, it's essential economic or resource analysis of what's going on is, is so particularly essential because so much of the kind of mainstream popular discussion of these conflicts is purely in terms of identity and so on. And the economics is always sort of hidden from view, certainly for a, a large section of the public and so on. So I think that's extremely useful. Uh, thank you, Artif, for that presentation.